Good evening. Good evening. I, yes. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm <laughs> um, very happy to welcome all of you to what I think will be a very stimulating talk. Uh, let me introduce myself, and then I'll do all the other stuff. Uh, my name is Naira Kabir, and I am a professor of gender and development, uh, jointly between the development between the Department of International Development and the Department of Gender Studies. And I want to welcome all of you to this event, which is one of LSE's very exciting series of public events, for those of you who have been here. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you very quickly that in case we have a fire, but it's, <laughs> it's not on the, on the agenda, but you, you never know, you have to make your way to the front of the building. Uh, Lincoln and Fields to the front of the building, but the stewards are here to, you know, escort you out if that's necessary. Uh, the procedure will be that uh, I'll do this little spiel a bit longer, and then I'll hand over to Jana, and she'll speak for about 45 minutes, 45-50 minutes, and then we'll open up for questions, uh, and we will end uh, at the dot of 8 o'clock. Um, the event will be recorded, and I hope that there will be, um, you know, very, you know, technology sometimes lets you down, but we hope that there will be a recording available for you, podcast. Uh, but it does mean that um, Jana has to be very careful about the mic, and if anyone wants to ask questions later, they should introduce themselves and also wait for the mic to come to you. Uh, what else do I have to tell you? Mobile phones, please put them on silent so it doesn't you know, interrupt. And if you do want to tweet about it, the hashtag is there, LSE Global Health. Uh, so without much further ado, let me first tell you a little bit about the, the center, the initiative that's organizing this. And that is the LSE Global Health Initiative, which is interdepartmental and is also takes an explicitly interdisciplinary approach to the critical study of global health challenges. It has a thriving research agenda, which involves both academics and students, uh, doctoral students, or around issues of abortion, um, including adolescence and abortion in sub-Saharan Africa, the economic implications of abortion-seeking behavior in Zambia, uh, Zika and abortion in Latin America, abortion trajectories in India and so on. And as a result of this, you know, growing, you know, this is a very topical um, issue and a very political issue. And as a result, a lot of our master's students are actually doing their dissertations on abortion, particularly because of this global guidance. So let me now then turn to uh, Professor Jana Rogers. Uh, she is professor at the Department of Labor Studies and Employment Relations, as well as at the Department of Women and Gender Studies at Rutgers University in the US. She specializes, and this is very interesting, she specializes in quantitative methods and large data sets to conduct research on women's health, on labor market status and well-being. And she's worked regularly as a consultant for a variety of international multilateral agencies, including the World Bank, uh, the UN, the Asian Development Bank. She was president of the International Association of Feminist Economics. Of which Nyla is and president I am now. the president of... <laughs> That's why I put the was and the am. Um, but it, it will tell you that feminist economics is not like uh, normal economics. 
It's far more interdisciplinary. It covers a whole range of issues. It uses a variety of methods. So if any of you are interested in joining the International Association of Feminist Economics, I would advise you to do it this year because the next conference is going to be in Glasgow. So you won't have to travel very far. So you just have to uh, Google it and you'll see how to get there. Uh, Jana has uh, done her PhD, earned a PhD in economics at Harvard University and her BA in economics from Cornell University. And uh, I've known her off and on over the years, and I take great pleasure in inviting her for the very first time to the LSE. Over to you, Jana. Thank you. And um, for those of you who don't know Nyla Kabir, I just want to add, uh, in addition to saying thank you for um, chairing this uh, session today, um, Nyla Kabir is one of our most famous feminist economists and overall economist. Um, I think this past year she was just selected to be one of the world's 100 top women um, influential people in policymaking by Politico, which is a, a real honor. So, so if you're unfamiliar with Professor Kabir, I encourage you to take one of her classes. Um, <laughs> And just out of curiosity, how many of you here have taken an economics class before? Okay, many of you. All right, so I will be doing a little bit of economic theory today, of which I'll walk you through gradually and slowly. A little bit of statistics, some econometrics, and if you haven't had any economics whatsoever, I am going to do it um, in a very intuitive kind of way, so don't be scared off. Um, and before I move over to the formal presentation, I just want to say how nice it is to be here. Um, I actually learned to speak English in the UK. I was born in Holland, and at the age of four, we moved to the UK, and this is where I learned to speak um, English in um, uh, Buckinghamshire. And then at the age of seven, we moved to the United States, and all the children there made fun of me for my British accent. So I lost it in a hurry, and now I speak like an American. All right, so let me walk over. And um, yes, this talk today is the same title of a book that is coming out next week, actually. Um, so I wrote it all of last year, finished it up in January. It's been in press, um, and it's now gone through the printers, and it's available um, at bookstores starting next week, November 20th, which is kind of exciting. And I will tell you all about uh, the global gag rule, um, what it is. It's a policy that um, fluctuates with American politics, but it has repercussions all over the world. It's not just an American policy. It was originally known as the Mexico City policy because uh, Republican President Ronald Reagan introduced it in 1984 at a major conference on population and development in Mexico City, and it was there that um, he announced that the U.S. government would take a new approach towards family planning and reproductive health assistance. Uh, before the U.S. was funding a lot of this aid to developing countries, as of 1984, it was now conditioned on a certain um, policy, and that was that any NGO that provided abortion services, even with their own funding, 
or counseled on abortion, made abortion referrals, or even did advocacy on abortion law reforms in their home country would no longer get financial aid from the United States, no longer get um, family planning and reproductive health assistance. So this effectively put a gag on the freedom of speech of doctors and health care practitioners and staff abroad in limiting what they could say. And it earned the derisive name of the global gag rule uh, because of this policy. And it affected any uh, NGO, non-governmental organization abroad. And after President Ronald Reagan instituted this policy, it was continued by the next Republican president, the first George Bush. It was later rescinded by President Bill Clinton. It was reinstated by the second Republican George Bush. It was rescinded by Democratic President Barack Obama. And again, reinstated and expanded by Trump. Um, not only did he reinstate it, he um, extended it before it covered only family planning and reproductive health assistance, which is a sizable pot of money, about 600 million U.S. dollars. Trump extended that condition um, to all global health funding from the U.S., which amounts to about $10 billion a year. So any NGO abroad engaged in global health activities, um, if they provided abortion services or counseled on it or mentioned the word abortion um, or did any kind of advocacy on abortion law, they would have their funding cut off from the U.S. Um, and this made a lot of big press, a lot of media, even more media coverage compared to earlier versions when it wasn't quite so heated, just because of who Trump is. He just draws a lot of media. Um, and you probably remember all the women's marches last year when Trump was inaugurated, the marches all over the world, including <coughs> here in London. Um, and some women and men marched with signs that said, end the gag rule. And this was at about the time Nyla asked me, when did I write the book? Uh, back in January last year, I had a reporter ask me, so tell me, what's this global gag rule? What does it mean? Who does it impact? And I honestly didn't know a lot about it. I said, well, I'll have to get back to you in a couple of hours with those answers. So I did a little research in those couple of hours and saw that there was a lot of rhetoric, a lot of media, um, some websites but very, very little scholarly work on the global gag rule, and that's how I got the idea to write this book. Um, so given all this rhetoric I saw on both sides, right wing and left wing, thought, okay, what is the real impact of the global gag rule? What is it? How does it work? Um, who will it affect? And that's uh, what I'll be talking about with you today, and especially looking at access to contraception, women's fertility, and abortion rates. Okay, so um, I'll not go too far into the history, but just to give you a quick overview, um, the U.S. government, I think like the British government, has been involved with family planning assistance for a number of decades. And you can think of this period in three kind of phases. 
um, that I've phrased as uh, the population control period, the safe motherhood period, and women's reproductive rights. And these are each associated with the motivation for the rationale for government involvement in family planning assistance. So the first kind of regime or phase, population control, is when the U.S. government was extremely concerned about high population growth in developing countries. And the way that we thought, we, the U.S., thought we could um, control that because they were afraid of macroeconomic imbalance, the Malthusian problem of chaos with not enough food for these you know, bulging, um, bulging populations, was to control women's fertility. And the way to do that was to disseminate assistance for family planning and actual methods for family planning, including abortion, ironically. Some of the early names in this period, this was the 1960s, 1970s, included some prominent Republicans in the U.S., Ronald, Rick, uh, Ronald Nixon, the first George Bush. And again, this kind of toolkit of abortion methods did include, of um, family planning methods included abortion. And it wasn't until Ronald Reagan in the 1980s that abortion was taken out of consideration for a family planning method. By the 1980s, there was more concern about growing maternal mortality, and the focus of family planning and reproductive health assistance from the U.S. started to shift away from population control to maternal and child health initiatives and ways to reduce mortality for women and to make it safer to be a mother, including this uh, part of this time period was a conference in Africa on, it was called the Safe Motherhood Initiative. And then by the 1990s with the women's rights movement, growing work of feminists and more health advocates argued that all women, not just mothers, deserve access to reproductive health. Uh, services of all kinds. And that's when the um, rationale for family planning and reproductive health was more about overall women's reproductive rights and sexual rights, including a big, one, another one of these big international conferences that really emphasized women's reproductive rights. What I'd like to do next is uh, show you some charts that will give you a flavor of um, financial aid flows in this area and why the global gag rule is so restrictive, why it matters. So we'll look at global flows and U.S. flows of um, financial assistance. Now this is data from the United Nations uh, Population Fund, which tracks what's called global population assistance. And population assistance is divided into four categories. The blue is family planning. The red is reproductive health. Green is uh, mostly HIV AIDS and some money for sexually transmitted uh, diseases. And the purple is basic research. And what's clear from this chart is that over time, population assistance has grown very rapidly, mostly due to funding 
for the treatment and prevention of HIV-AIDS. Okay, and this is global assistance. It's not just U.S. In fact, um, the amount going towards family planning has stayed roughly constant, even a little bit smaller over time, but as the proportion of all population assistance has been shrinking. Uh, similarly for reproductive health assistance. It's grown in absolute terms, but as a proportion, hasn't increased much. Can I ask a question directly on that? Yes. Uh, in 2000-2001, when Bush II came into the presidency, what was his initial Oops. pot of PEPFAR funds? The amount? The, yeah, the initial pot, because it, at the mm -hmm. moment it's about six billion US people. What was it in a, well, when he first started the PEPFAR I don't know the actual number. It's a good question. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you. Okay. Great. I like when there's experts in the room. <laughs> Field questions. Okay. So, um, who does all this funding? Ninety percent of it is uh, from developed countries. Okay. So, bilateral assistance is by far the largest chunk of population assistance. And the rest is made up of the uh, of foundations, uh, NGOs that do provide some funding, as well as the major development banks and the development agencies. Um, of the uh, the red portion, this is kind of a fun um, trivia question for you: of foundations and NGOs, any guesses of the largest foundation uh, to provide population assistance? Okay. <laughs> target. Right. Yeah. Okay, this one may be a little trickier, and this is the fun one. Uh, anyone know who knows this literature well know the largest uh, NGO? Is it IPPF or Mary Stopes? Neither one of those. No. It's one that probably no one's ever heard of unless you have done a digging, a lot of digging in this area, which I was doing for the book. Uh, it's called DKT International. And I saw this, I thought, okay, who's DKT? Well, what are they? Uh, DKT, the president, is Phil Harvey, who is actually a very rich man who has a mission in life to make sex fun and safe for everyone. He owns the Adam and Eve sex toy company. And it turns out he has plowed his profits from Adam and Eve sex toys into the nonprofit DKT International that provides either free or low-cost and often fun methods of contraception all over the developing world. So I thought that was... Wow, and he's reassuring. Yeah, so I thought that was um, interesting. There's a, a few interesting figures in this whole history. Um, you know, we're talking about sex, so of course there's going to be some interesting figures and stories. All right, so we have it down now. 90% of population assistance is through bilateral aid. Of that 90%, by far the largest donor is the United States. They provide um, about 57% of population assistance. So this is why when we have this global gag rule, it does matter, unfortunately. It does take a big bite. Um, next after that is the UK. Okay, providing 10% of population assistance. Okay, the data are a little bit outdated. Unfortunately, uh, the UN, apparently, it was my understanding, it was one person that tracked this data, and she retired a couple of years ago <laughs> when I was doing this research. I asked, I emailed a couple of people at the UN, 
and I said, where's the more updated data? And they just stopped publishing this really good data series. Um, so that's why, and the rest is uh, all industrialized countries, largely in Europe, that uh, do fill in and historically have come to try to cover some of the gap whenever the U.S. gag rule is in place. All right, so of the total U.S. global health funding that is now at stake with Trump's extended global gag rule, most of that is going to HIV-AIDS, which is why many people in the past who were not as concerned about the global gag rule now are very concerned. Uh, your question about PEPFAR. Um, all of you know, the good done by PEPFAR is now at risk. If um, health providers you know, tell a pregnant woman who has HIV AIDS, oh, you know, you can get an abortion, uh, they can't do that anymore. And there's a number of organizations that have refused to comply because they believe it's unethical not to counsel a woman with AIDS that she can get an abortion. So people are really worried about the global gag rule and, and AIDS. Um, this uh, sky blue portion here is family planning and reproductive health. So in the past, this was the only chunk that was affected by the global gag rule. Now it's almost everything except for um, the global fund. This is considered a multilateral agency, which is not covered by the global gag rule, but most things are. And as we were talking about before the discussion, I don't know if you've been following this event. Um, it was supposed to be um, chaired by one of your professors, Ernestina Coast, uh, but she is now in uh, presenting a paper about abortion and other things in Rwanda at a contraceptive conference, I believe it is. And several people on her panel were told they could not go because uh, she was talking about abortion and they had funding from organizations that were so worried about the global gag rule that they were not going to the conference or at least would not go on her panel. So this is the very sometimes over-interpretation and the fear of being accused of violating the global gag rule. It's even affected academics. Okay, so um, in terms of the history and the scope, the next slide I'm going to show you um, has uh, just a visual representation of the enactment and suspension. Uh, previous literature, you know, as an academic, you want to contribute to the literature. There were a number of studies with qualitative methods looking at the two earlier iterations under Reagan and the second George Bush of those global gag rules, but not much statistical evidence, which is why I thought, because I love data, I love working with regressions and coming up with stories using the data, there were two. And they got a lot of media attention. Uh, Kelly Jones did a really interesting study, a detailed study just on Ghana. And then three co-authors from Stanford University, led by Aaron Ben-David, did um, and a statistical study on 20 sub-Saharan African countries, both found that abortion rates actually increased as a result of the global gag rule. And the mechanism was because of more difficult access to contraception. Because clinics now closed, they had fewer doctors, less staff, contraception was more expensive, it was harder to get, there were more unintended pregnancies, and as a result, more abortions. So the two studies done before this one, 
that I did both showed that abortion rates increased. So here's just a little visual representation of the global gag rule. It was first introduced in 1984 by Ronald Reagan, continued by the first George Bush, suspended by Bill Clinton, reinstated by the second George Bush, suspended by Barack Obama, and reinstated by Trump. Okay, here comes a little theory. I'm going to walk you through this very easily, but it's to just add some economics um, and to go beyond the rhetoric around the global gag rule and to come up with a little framework for understanding why the gag rule affects abortion. And the way we're going to do this, we're going to think about the marginal cost of using contraception, where we call it the change in C divided by the change in P. And the change in C is the total cost of using a particular level of contraceptive intensity, where total cost can include the financial cost. Um, let's say it's um, to get some sort of implant. You, know, you have to pay for it. It can also take time. You have to travel to a clinic. It takes time to sit and wait and get the method. Um, and finally, uh, some sort of emotional or physical cost. It can be uncomfortable. One may have to negotiate with a partner. There may be stigma involved in using a particular method in a, a particular country. Um, there's actually different method mixes all over the world if you look by countries. In some countries, condoms are far, far more popular uh, than other countries. And in other countries, uh, female sterilization is very, very common. A lot of variation. Um, yeah, so that's the cost. The P is the probability of avoiding pregnancy. And in the graph that I'm about to show you, you'll see that as one gets more and more uh, able to avoid pregnancy by using a more intensive method of contraception, probably female sterilization would be one of the most um, costly forms of contraceptive intensity or avoiding sex altogether. Um, that increases at an increasing rate and um, where women choose, and it's a, this is a micro-level model of women's choice, they choose the level of contraceptive intensity where the marginal cost is equal to the net cost of giving birth. Okay, what we're going to build into the model is the possibility of getting pregnant and having an abortion. And what we're going to see is what happens when the marginal cost of contraceptive intensity increases as a result of the global gag rule. Okay, so this is the basic diagram that I told you we have this increasing marginal cost of contraception. On the x-axis is the probability of avoiding pregnancy. So the higher we go, that's the more likely it is that we avoid pregnancy. Okay, but that means a fairly high cost of contraception. So I think uh, female sterilization, you know, it's a whole procedure. It takes a lot of time. It can be very uncomfortable. It's pretty costly. Um, and down here might be, um, say, traditional methods that don't work very well, withdrawal or periodic abstinence. Um, you're likely to um, not avoid pregnancy, uh, but it's not very costly. And the cost of birth here is the horizontal line. So in equilibrium, P star is the probability of avoiding pregnancy. 
Okay, in this case, the cost of abortion is above the cost of birth, but those two lines could be flipped depending on the country. So with the global gag rule, clinics close. Sometimes uh, USAID has cut off shipments of contraceptive methods to particular countries. There's less staff because there's less funding to pay them, fewer doctors. Contraception becomes more expensive more difficult to get to. Women have to travel longer to get these methods. So the curve shifts up, and what we end up seeing is a leftward shift in the equilibrium <clears throat> probability of avoiding pregnancy. So the probability of avoiding pregnancy falls. Women are more likely to get pregnant, okay, which could mean more unintended pregnancies. Okay, in this case, uh, she'll choose to give birth. So we could here model then an increase in fertility, increase in birth rates. If these two horizontal lines were flipped, the model does predict an increase in abortion rates. Okay, so this is the very basic, this is a very basic model for intuitively understanding how the global gag rule could increase abortions. Questions? Has that been validated, that model? Because it seems to rest on a lot of assumptions. Very. It's a very simple model. Um, has it been validated? Well, I'm about to do some regression analysis um, where you know, what I find is an increase in abortion rates in certain regions. Um, can the model be improved on? Yes. Uh, this I adapted from Phil Levine, who's done a lot of work on abortion, but I don't. I think it's a little too simple. And in some future work I'm doing with Ernestina Coast, we're looking more at the economics of abortion, and we'll be thinking about how to improve this model a bit. Yeah, I'm not very satisfied with it either, but it does the job. <laughs> Okay, so this just summarizes what I just said in words that um, a reduced, we have a reduced access to contraceptive services, which could lead to an increase in unintended pregnancies, an increase in abortion, and an increase in fertility. And this we need in order to understand um, the impact of the global gag rule. What I'd like to do next is show you some um, data on fertility and access to modern contraception, uh, some data on global rates of abortion, and then some data on reproductive health indicators and how they link with national abortion laws. Okay, so in general, um, this is uh, UN, United Nations data on fertility rates and prevalence of modern contraceptive methods. When I say modern, it's any kind of contraceptive method that goes above and beyond abstinence and withdrawal and other traditional methods. And you see that as um, the percent of women who use modern contraception increases, the total fertility rate goes down. And this is all countries that report this data to the UN grouped into different geographic regions. Okay, next, this is um, data published by a group of researchers at, based at Guttmacher Institute on um, global 
rates of abortion divided by regions. And um, some of the more interesting numbers, globally, the abortion rate has decreased over time from 40 to 35, uh, but it's decreased more in developed countries than developing countries. Interestingly, the percent of pregnancies ending in abortion has risen slightly uh, over time. Globally, about one quarter of all pregnancies end in abortion. Okay, I don't know what that number is for the UK. I know in the US, it was just uh, estimated in a separate study that focused just on the US, it was also 25%. Some people find that surprisingly high. Like, how is that? But um, this is, I think, um, you know, it's published in one of the best medical journals. If anything, it could be underreported because abortions tend to be underreported. There's still a lot of stigma, a lot of shame. Um, so if anything, these rates may be a little higher. But globally, about one quarter of all pregnancies end in abortion. It's higher in developing countries than developed, and some of the highest rates are in um, Latin America, where, ironically, the abortion laws are the most restrictive. So it implies that many of these abortions are unsafe. Okay, and here's some data that the UN put together, which I found uh, really interesting. This looks at national abortion laws. Yes? Sorry to bring you back to the previous slide. Um, for those abortion rates, are those the percentage of pregnancies ending in abortion, are you talking about spontaneous abortion or only induced? This is induced abortion. Okay. So these are not miscarriages. So it factor into no. These are estimated okay. rates of induced abortion. And they use a number of different algorithms. It's really, really complicated, and I'll talk about it again a bit later because I had to do it myself to come up with estimates of abortion rates. Yeah. Okay, so what the UN did uh, was to group all countries for which they had data into two groups, those which had liberal national laws on abortion and those which had very restrictive laws, uh, those that only allowed a, an abortion if uh, a mother was in danger of losing her life or, or didn't allow abortion at all. And the UN then has indicators on four measures of women's reproductive health. The adolescent birth rate, total fertility rate, the rate of unsafe abortions, and maternal mortality. And in all four of these cases, the indicator was higher for countries with very restrictive national abortion laws. Okay, so you can think there's probably two things going on here. It could be causal, which is easy to believe, especially in the case of unsafe abortions. If abortions are illegal, except in the case of a mother dying, um, it's likely that most abortions will be unsafe. Uh, I've interviewed a number of people for this work, um, and they all said, if a woman wants to get an abortion, she's going to get an abortion. It doesn't matter what the laws say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could argue then there's some causality going on here. Um, but it could also be an income effect. More countries in the restrictive abortion law category are low-income countries. Mm -hmm. And in low-income countries, 
Um, there's higher rates of maternal mortality. There's higher t rates of fertility. So there could be an income effect here. It may not be causal. All right, so the last uh, bit that I'm going to spend time on is uh, some econometric estimates of the global gag rule. And what I did was uh, follow the methodology used in that Stanford study that I told you about, and I extended it to all developing regions. And um, one difficulty, the main difficulty, was constructing abortion rate data. There is no, you can't just go online and get abortion data. It's not there. And those global abortion rates that you asked about um, earlier are not available publicly as time series for individual countries. Okay, they're regional aggregates and therefore narrowly defined time periods. So what I did was follow the precedent set by the Ben David et al. study and extended it. They just did sub-Saharan Africa. I got additional data for South and Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and Latin America and the Caribbean. 51 countries altogether, um, grouped them into four regions, and looked at the second iteration of the global gag rule under the second George Bush. That started in 2001, so I looked at before and after. Uh, so from 1994 to 2008. And DHS is the Demographic and Health Survey. Raise your hands if you've heard of DHS data. Okay, it's great data. It looks like about half of you have heard of it. If you haven't, if you ever need data to do uh, even descriptive statistics, uh, just find Demographic and Health Survey. It's really great data. <coughs> Altogether, my sample had about 6.3 million women per year uh, observation. So it's a pretty big data set. And if you know the DHS data, you know for some countries, in some years, there's something called calendar information, where a woman reported for the last five years, every month, what was the state of her, we'll call it reproductive health, was she pregnant? Yes or no. Was she using contraception? Yes or no. If so, what kind? Did she give birth in a particular month? Or did she have a termination? And that's the way it's asked in the DHS. And that was the question that you asked earlier, induced or, or spontaneous. You don't know because abortion is still so stigmatized. People don't want to report it. A woman is simply asked in the DHS, did you have a termination? Okay, so we know this information for every month in the past five years. So if, a data, if that data was included in the DHS, then I kept that country. And if not, then they're not in the sample. And then I needed to use a special algorithm that um, was uh, first used in the Ben David et al. article, because there's some other questions in the DHS where you can kind of tease out or figure out if a termination was an induced abortion or if it was a spontaneous miscarriage. This took all summer <laughs> last year, literally all summer long. It took a long time to figure it out, too much time. Um, for those of you who have had some econometrics, the empirical strategy is called difference in differences. And it's one of the most common methods that um, economists and sociologists and policy people use to try to measure the causal effect of a policy or a program. 
where you look at, say, the difference before and after, and the difference between a treatment group and a control group. So difference in differences. And in this case, the two differences are before and after, and a country exposed to the global gag rule and a country not exposed. Okay. So who's exposed? How do you measure that? Here I use data from the OECD. It's great data on all official forms of development assistance to developing countries by detailed categories, including family planning and reproductive health. So countries called high exposure, they had high US per capita financial assistance for family planning and reproductive health before the global gag rule was in effect and countries with low exposure had below average. Okay, and I just did a simple um, high or low, the, the categorization. And um, I'm about to show you the sample countries and the four regions. And you're gonna see two bars that jump out as having very high per capita financial assistance from the US. Jordan and Bolivia, I don't know why they're so high, but they had a lot of family planning and reproductive health assistance per capita. So that's Latin America and the Caribbean. Any country here in all four charts to the left of the bar was high exposure, and to the right of the bar was low exposure. So I did do my estimates separately for the four regions. Eastern Europe and Central Asia, South and Southeast Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so Bolivia really jumps out. Jordan was very high. Cambodia was pretty high, and Nepal also stood out, Nicaragua. Okay, all received fairly high assistance from the U.S. Um, before that second iteration of the global gag rule went into effect. Okay, here's the one equation. I'll only do one, and I'm <laughs> going to spell it out in words. Uh, I did what's called a logistic regression, where I'm trying to capture the policy impact controlling for anything else that may explain what happened to abortion rates. So what I'm interested in is whether or not a woman had an abortion. That's what we call the dependent variable. These other things on the right-hand side are the independent variables, or what could determine if a woman got an abortion. This first measure is if the policy was in effect. It's one if it was in effect, uh, that was after Bush reinstated it in 2001. And the pre-years, they get a zero. High exposure is if the woman getting an abortion or not lived in a country that was highly exposed to the global gag rule. A zero if it was not exposed. And this difference in difference effect is captured by what's called the interaction term. So a woman living in a country that was highly exposed and when the policy was in effect. And that's this key term that we're interested in. And that's what captures the causal impact of the global gag rule. X is this matrix of all these other characteristics for the woman, for the country, that could affect whether or not she has an abortion. Things like her education, if she's married or not, her age, if she lives in a city or the country also included some country characteristics. Okay, and again, this regression was done separately for all four regions. Okay, I'm not going to talk about the very next slide, all the numbers. Uh, these, okay, 
But I will explain one, because I thought this was kind of interesting. One of the particular control variables at the country level uh, was the National Abortion Law Index. And again, this is data, if you're interested in um, abortion laws by countries, the UN has a really good data set freely available on abortion laws. And it gives you, for every country just about in the world, the legal grounds upon which women may get an abortion. The most restrictive is a zero. And there were a few countries in this period, there's now a few more that have come <coughs> on board. Nicaragua and East Timor have a zero. Women may not get an abortion at all, even if she's dying. A one is she may get an abortion if it will save her life. Okay, two, she may get an abortion um, if it will safeguard her health and so forth. It gets less and less restrictive to protect her mental health um, if she was raped or suffered incest, um, if uh, there's reasons of fetal impairment for economic or social reasons, or seven on request. So what I did was code all countries according to these seven grounds and then simply added them up. So any country with a seven is the least restrictive that women can get an abortion for any reason and a zero is the most restrictive. So when you look at the regional averages, Latin America and the Caribbean is the most restrictive region. It's very difficult for women to get abortions in Latin America and the Caribbean. And Eastern Europe and Central Asia is the least restrictive. In fact, I don't know if you, does anyone know the first country in the world where abortion was legalized nationally? Was, I didn't hear? Yes. Yeah. So now there's a, the former Soviet republics tend to be less restrictive on abortion because of Russia or the, the USSR uh, was the first to legalize abortion back, I think it was the 1930s. It was a while ago. Okay, so these are the regression results. What I'm going to focus on is uh, this third one down. This is the interaction term. And anything with stars means it's statistically significant. So I'm not going to talk about these numbers um, except in words now, the bullet points. But those of you who want to see the regression results later, we can come back to that slide. Um, so what I saw on that interaction term, um, let me talk first about this middle point, this middle summary. SSA is sub-Saharan Africa. That uh, number was a little bit larger than two. And the way you interpret these uh, logit results, they're called odds ratios. And the number two, which is what Ben David and his authors, co-authors got, means that women had twice the odds of getting an abortion as a result of the global gag rule. And that's the number a lot of people in the media have picked up on as a result of the Ben David article. Okay, that women were twice as likely, or they had twice the odds of getting an abortion because of the global gag rule. But what my results, I replicated that, but then I found in Latin American Caribbean that the number on this interaction term was a three. So women had three times the odds of getting an abortion as a result of the global gag rule in Latin America and the Caribbean. Okay, so that's even higher than what Ben David et al. had found. Okay, and both... So, these figures will not include women who died having an abortion. 
That's correct. So what we've got are the women who survived in abortion. Yes. Yes, they may have been unsafe abortions. Uh, so if anything, you know, these could be under underestimates. Yes, because women who died would not appear in the DHS. Yeah, it's a good point. Okay, both of these regions have very restrictive abortion laws. The most in, subs in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, but also sub-Saharan Africa. There's a number of countries there that it's very difficult to get an abortion. Okay, I did find the opposite, lower odds of getting an abortion in the other two regions. In Eastern Europe and Central Asia, there was a lower odds of getting an abortion as a result of the global gag rule, but one of the other control variables was um, financial assistance from other donors besides the U.S. And there, that was the opposite in sign and almost the same magnitude, so those two kind of canceled each other out. So only in South and Southeast Asia did the global gag rule appear to reduce women's access to abortion and abortion rates, so the odds of getting an abortion did um, fall in Southeast and South Asia. Okay, but there one could argue that if along with that came decreased access to contraception and other you know, reproductive health services, this is a part of the world where many women can't afford to have less access to health care. Um, so uh, again, what, why am I getting the, some of these regional differences? It may go back to that rather simple model that by region the cost of having an abortion could be higher or lower uh, than other regions and that might affect some of these uh, regional differences. So my last two slides are the three key messages that I'm trying to give as a result of doing this research for the book. And the first is that the global gag rule does not work. Okay, it does the opposite of what its designers, I believe, intended it to do. Okay, if they wanted to discourage women from getting an abortion, the global gag rule does not do that. In fact, it increases the odds of women getting an abortion in the majority of countries exposed to the policy. Okay, the second big lesson coming from the book is that there's no clear relationship between national <coughs> abortion laws and abortion rates. Okay, I did include abortion laws in my regressions, and there some of the results were higher odds, some were lower odds, some were statistically significant, some were not. No clear relationship. And that's consistent with some of the literature that I reviewed also. So if anything, what more restrictive national abortions do is to increase unsafe abortions. Okay, There's no evidence at all that restrictive abortion laws decrease abortion rates. And the final takeaway is that this expanded uh, global gag rule that Trump put into effect is likely to have adverse effects on a dashboard of global health indicators, not just for women, but also for children and for men, okay, because of the decrease in funding for all different kinds of global health initiatives, you know, including HIV AIDS, but also things like um, screening for STIs, immunizations, cervical cancer uh, screenings, malaria treatment. Now, there's uh, a lot of work being done on the ground now 
by some of the organizations you mentioned earlier, including Marie Stokes, um, Planned Parenthood, and a number of other large organizations that refused to comply with the global gag rule, and they're now under strain, financial strain, and they provide a lot of health services. These are all um, now uh, people are doing research, qualitative research, and starting to find negative impacts. In the longer term, there could be indirect impacts if fertility rates are affected. Um, there could be these secondary feedback effects for, say, women's health, children's health, even things like investment, investment in girls' education. One study showed that if parents know that their daughters will have access to family planning, they're more likely to invest in their daughters. Okay, So some interesting work going on around access to contraception and economic empowerment of women and girls. Okay, um, In all irony, and um, I won't go on, uh, Trump's uh, administration called the global or the Mexico City policy, they renamed it the Protecting Life in Global Health Assistance. Okay, this policy does not protect life. It would be much more cost effective and um, constructive if the U.S. approach to family planning and reproductive health covered a wide range of reproductive health services, including access to safe abortion. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yana. That was very clear, very concise, and very powerful. Uh, before I open up to questions, I just have a couple of comments. Uh, because, you know, your, your talk sort of sparked off some thoughts in me. One was the, um, the point about what uh, Anastina is going through in terms of people withdrawing from the panel on the grounds that she will be talking about abortion. And when you and I had the conversation, it was really that people are over-interpreting this law. You know, there's nothing about this law that requires you not to even share a panel. But what that made me think about is, you know, when we fight for laws, we're fighting for the law and we're fighting for cascade effects. And what we're having here is very negative cascade effects. You know, so you have a bad law and it doesn't stop there. It has these unanticipated effects, which are about you know, people's ability to speak and talk and share their findings and so on. I think the second thing that really struck me, and I think struck all of us, is this seesaw about, you know, insert the global route, take it away. Give it back, take it away. And it's like the worst aspects of aid dependence, mm -hmm. you know, that your... Uh, ability to decide about your body is dependent on an American president's reading of his electorate. And that's, you know, there is no feedback loop, no accountability. And one question I had was, um, what happens to women's rights, reproductive rights within the U.S. when these people are fluctuating? Do they change or do they... Or is it just for the foreign, you know, for the, for the international assistance? So that was another thing that I really kind of, you know, I thought, what is happening? I know right now in the States, there's a war on women's bodies. Mm -hmm. But I wondered if that was the case with the Bushes and the Reagans and all of the others. Uh, so that, you know, uh, you may not be able to answer that. Um, I think in general, even 
under the Democratic President Obama at the state level, um, states were becoming more restrictive when it comes to women's access to contraception. So I don't think that fluctuates in the same role mm -hmm. as the global gag rule. Mm -hmm. And now with uh, this new Judge Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, there's a lot of concern mm -hmm. that uh, Roe versus Wade may be overturned. Uh, but the general movement in the U.S., I think since the late 1990s, has been more restrictions mm -hmm. on access to contraception. And if anything, that's intensified in the last few years. And my final point is, of course, you know, as an undergraduate at the LSE, we were out on the streets marching for abortion rights. And, you know, in most of the UK, I think we now have it, Ireland now has it. But it's extraordinary that in so much of the world, your final point about what we need, you know, integrate safe planning services with safe abortion, is what people have been fighting for for years. And, you know, and it, it's like two steps forward and then three steps back. And it seems like you know, the right to abortion remains somehow one of these highly controversial, contested, uh, and one set of lives pitted against another, yeah. which is what Trump's mm -hmm. statement is about. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So one thing I didn't, go, I didn't go into in the slides, but the book goes into a bit, is how that relates to religion. And you know, the Catholic Church... Uh, and Islam, you know, mm -hmm. probably the two big religions where there's been resistance um, politically mm -hmm. to women's abortion rights, especially the Catholic Church. Yeah. Okay, I'll open it up and I'll ask people to uh, wait till the mic comes and to give your name. And not to go on for too long. <laughs> I'm asking politely. Who's got the mic? Over here. And then there. I'll just take a couple here and then I'll come to you. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Antoinette. I'm actually a student at King's. And That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I work in, uh, in international family planning uh, services. I work on GGR. I am the GGR policy research comms person. So, Great. wow. I finally, I found my people. Okay, <laughs> okay just on that, yeah. there's an email there if you want to get in touch further with your people here. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, to open up a little bit on your final slide and what you were saying about integrated healthcare, the, this is why, as I'm sure... As I'm sure you know, you know, sanitation, nutrition, malnutrition, HIV, uh, children's services have all been affected by global gag rule because clinics, mo you know, modernizing their health services wanted to offer in places like Mozambique, Zambia, uh, wanted to offer all the health services in one place to their clients. So when uh, the GGR cut off funds to one clinic, it wasn't cutting funds to abortion or post-abortion care. Mm -hmm. It was cutting funds to everything uh, in that clinic. So it might have been nutrition that wasn't even... Anyway, we know this now, but I just wanted to to touch on that integrated healthcare. The other thing I want to touch on about USAID, uh, USAID is um, the technical scale of projects. So even though uh, MSI, for example, uh, is finding funds to fill in gaps in projects, uh, the scale of technical projects at AID is unmatched by other donors. So if you have a five-country project in West Africa, which is suddenly shut down, because, I don't know, GGR happened, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the scale is hard to replicate, even though funds are coming in. Um, my question, please, is about Kemp-Kasten Amendment, which happened or existed before 
the global gag rule, before Mexico City policy. And if there's any indication in your data that Kemp Caston had an effect on abortion rates or safe abortion rates or maternal and child health or, you know, maternal death, because Kemp Caston is what cut off abortion funds or if, if you know... Kemp Caston, as, as you know, Kemp Caston cut off funds to provide abortion services to NGOs, and the GGR restricted health funds to abortion providers. So the money was cut off in two different ways, but Kemp Caston happened first. So just if possible, if your data shows this, or if anecdotally, do you know anything about how Kemp Caston affected abortion rates? I'd okay, I'm going to take three of Okay. You next. Hi, my name's Lily. I'm a master's student in the IR department here. And and I'm picking up on where you were talking about the religious element of this, and especially the Catholic Church. I know the same people in the U.S. who are big proponents of the GGR are also proponents of abstinence-only sex education, um, opponents of widely available birth control, sterilization, condoms, etc., etc. So I was wondering if in your research you came across any information about those elements of how U.S. reproductive uh, global policy changes, you know, so under administrations, for example, that put in place the GGR, do you also see more funding going to abstinence-only uh, sex ed in other parts of the world, etc. Okay, and then one more. You, over here. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to go you, because I don't know people's names. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to have a quick question with, um, we were doing, I, I do access to midwifery and I wanted to know that, is it true that in England that um, the NHS doesn't do abortion and um, is private, like for you to do abortion is private, like companies provide them privately? Okay, do you want to take those three? Okay, they're all excellent questions. Um, I did not do a separate test for Kemp-Kastner Amendment, so just did the GGR. Um, I t talked about it a little bit, but it's been so while, a while ago since I wrote that particular chapter, I don't remember any more of the details besides you know, what it is and what it does, but I didn't do any separate empirical estimates. For it. So I'm sorry I don't have a more detailed answer for you, but it's a good one. And clearly, um, you know, Kemp Kastner fluctuated along with the global gag rule, and it could be that my estimates picked up both because they did move together. Um, abstinence only, sex ed, I think that uh, that was your question. Um, tended to also fluctuate in the same way as the global gag rule and I think was um, particularly, uh, had gained particular emphasis under the second George Bush. And this is, remember, I'm, I'm going to answer partly with an anecdote. I, rem I mentioned to you there were some interesting characters and people in this whole story, and one had to deal, had to go with um, abstinence-only kinds of sex ed, and that was under the second George Bush his main policy czar, I think, um, was head of both the USAID as well as, I think, one of the UN bodies that was in charge of global health, um, some Republican policy bigwig, and uh, was in charge, and he advocated for abstinence-only sex ed. And then um, a few months into his ruling, 
uh, some media reporter came out with a story that he had been linked with using escort services, and he promptly retired or resigned um, when the story broke. So it you know deals with some of the hypocrisy of these Republican um, administration people pushing abstinence-only sex ed, but practicing other, you know, <laughs> habits in their private lives, and that has gone on. But as, a, um, you know, funding for sex ed uh, and, you know, the other kind of policies that you mentioned, I didn't look at those fluctuations, but again, they all kind of move in the same way as, you know, being conservative or more um, liberal, depending on whether it's Republican or Democrat in office. And I'm not a UK expert, so in terms of whether abortion is publicly or privately financed. I think it's publicly available, yeah. Unless something changed drastically. <laughs> um, can I just make a point? I would think that with the cuts, uh, there may well be um, pressure to mm -hmm. that people being encouraged more to use mm -hmm. private facilities. Yeah. But it, it's still legal and it's still oh, available and in yeah. principle, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to have two doctors. Yeah. Two. Uh, yes, one, two, and then three. Okay, and I'll come back to you. I was just going to say it's provided by private organizations. Can, can you use the mic? We'll pass it down. Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> I was just going to say it's fun. It, it's provided by two. Most abortions are provided by two private organisations, but pub, uh, but they're funded by the NHS. Okay, and then someone behind you. Yeah. Hi, thanks. My name is Laura. I'm a, a PhD student of Ernestina Coast and Tiziana. Um, I had two questions about uh, the empirical analysis. My first question was: um, Did you uh, look at heterogeneity of the effect by? Um, the restrictiveness of the law as instead of by region. And my other question was, um, I was wondering if in an extra slide or something, you have the parallel trends for uh, the control and treatment groups um, in the pre-period to see if they're parallel and therefore whether a diff and diff is, would give us um, a causal effect. And you had your hand up? Yes, um, uh, my name is George, um, a student here from LSE. Uh, I wanted to ask, because you've said that there is like, um, you know, women are more likely to have an abortion when the cost of birth is higher than the cost of abortion. So does the data from your research or any other research shows a correlation, not just between, you know, the abortion and more restrictive or more liberal laws, but which ab abortion and wider or, or not so wider uh, programs of support for motherhood and women and something like that. Okay, can you just repeat that question? Yeah. <laughs> yes, excuse me. Okay. Um, that, I mean, if there is a correlation uh, between, uh, you know, the, the support from, uh, for, uh, to motherhood in, in the laws and in the different countries and the likelihood of a woman getting an abortion. Okay. All right. Um, I think it was two people, right? Two? No. Oh, yes, someone just answered. Okay, those two. Okay. All right. Um, so heterogeneity by restrictiveness of the law. The only um, time I use restrict 
So you're asking the restrictiveness of national abortion laws? So not just including a set of control, but looking at the effect in the different groups countries according to the restrictiveness of the national law. Oh, that would be interesting. Um, I did not do that. Yeah, okay. That would be really, you know, I just did by region because um, there's so many cultural differences, you know, across countries and regions in attitudes towards contraceptive use, types of contraception used, abortion. It seemed to make more sense to group countries by region. Um, so all these different regression coefficients, the assumption is that women in particular countries in a certain region would respond similarly you know, to these predictors of whether or not they get an abortion rather than how restrictive the law is. Um, that was my reasoning, that is mostly regional differences across um, you know, the determinants of abortion. Uh, but it would be interesting to try. And then the parallel trends before the global gag rule went into effect, I did not look at that. Uh, but that would be, um, I think I put a lot of faith into the Ben David et al. method because it got so much attention. I didn't really question too much their method, um, especially since it was part of the book. I thought, let's just use their method and extend it to all these other countries. I wasn't very critical of their method or, or tested others. I, I just went with what they did because it was so widely used and cited. Mm -hmm. And the correlation between support for motherhood and the likelihood of getting an abortion. Um, that's a really good question. You all are stumping me. Um, so I hope there's people here taking notes in terms of this is a good research idea uh, in all seriousness, because I think this is an under-researched area. The fact that, you know, before I started this work, only two papers had looked empirically at the global gag rule, you know, suggests that there's not a lot of research being done here, yet the data is there. I think... Um, Again, the whatever stigma around abortion or the, the perception that it's a woman's issue, but I think everyone's asking really good questions. I hope you know the students in the room looking for research projects are taking notes um, because there's a lot here that I did not do. So if there's more support for motherhood in a country, is it more likely that a woman will go through with her pregnancy and give birth? Um, I think is a fascinating question. I don't know if anyone's looked at that. Yeah. Okay, uh, the person there and you. Um, thanks, hi, my name's Rashita. I'm a PhD student, Department of Social Policy, one of Ernestina's and Titiana's, so um, thank you for this. Uh, actually, just on that point around um, support for motherhood, I think in a lot of abortion studies we see that strong fertility norms, especially around motherhood, can actually act as barriers um, for accessing abortion. So I would be curious to see if support for motherhood actually ends up being a barrier rather than um, an enabling factor. So I think also, um, I thought it was really interesting that we saw these shifts uh, around policy and how the seesawing effect, um, but I think as policy is changing all the time, but so is abortion itself, 
Um, and we've seen this great shift um, and continue, it's such a dynamic point in abortion itself at the moment where new technologies have meant that just because a law is restrictive, it doesn't mean that it's unsafe. So I think um, in these, so like the advent of medical abortion, for example, in, in a lot of countries where it is restrictive, uh, those, the laws are restrictive and where perhaps the global gag rule has had a massive impact, um, I think the estimation of abortion itself drops uh, even more because all of this is hidden and invisibilized. So I was wondering if, so like in DKT, for example, also produce a lot of medical abortion kits. So I was wondering if there were other sources or ways in which um, we could look at perhaps a, a spike in um, medical abortion kits or, or a relaxation of uh, sort of like the governance around whether you can access these kits or not and how that would then shift some of these estimates and models. So I think we might have to collect some of your own data at yeah, some stage. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me go back and oh, one more. Okay. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Nicole. I'm a master's student in development management. And so in thinking about one of your conclusions, that what we really need is to integrate access to family planning and access to safe abortion, and also what you said, Dr. Kabir, about, you know, this is what we've been adv advocating for for decades. You know, do you have thoughts on how your data, how your research can be used to sort of break through and change the conversation among policymakers in the U.S.? And I'm honestly sort of in a bit of a, a cynical place when you think about the, you know, polarization of American politics and you think about... Um, the influence of the religious right and so on, you know, it's, I'm just finding it a little bit hard to believe that science is actually going to be able to persuade, persuade a lot of the forces that be to change policy in the way that we know that it needs to be changed. Good questions. Um, I think going back to the, the comment about the correlation with support for motherhood and the likelihood of abortion, it reminded me of something in, I looked for my literature review was the correlation between family planning and access to contraception and the likelihood of getting an abortion. And there's actually not a consensus in the literature that um, some countries that have seen a growing abortion incidents at the same time that access to contraception has risen because it hasn't been able to keep up with the demand um, for contraceptive methods. So uh, then there's been a positive association between at least um, you know, support for family planning and um, the likelihood of getting an abortion. So this, you know, this literature, again, on abortion rates and what determines it, it's um, very skimpy and not a lot of uh, consensus, I would say. Um, it was a question about medical abortion. For those of you who um, haven't heard of it, it's uh, the use of pretty much two um, pharmaceuticals in order to induce abortion. One is to um, stop the pregnancy from continuing and then to induce an abortion. And uh, these pharmaceuticals have become increasingly available all over the world. And especially one of the drugs um, is mis. Uh, misoprostol um, will, in many cases, induce an abortion, but sometimes not completely. And then a woman will go in and seek post-abortion care, which is allowed under the global gag rule. It has not been subject to the global gag rule. 
So uh, post-abortion care now has become one of the most common ways for women to actually go through with an abortion. She'll start the process with misoprostol. It may not be completely effective, and then she'll get post-abortion care, which she still can under the global gag rule, and that's become increasingly common. Um, so, yes, technology has affected um, you know, the way women are getting an abortion, but it still counts under the legal parameters, and some countries have banned the import of these medical abortion kits. I mean, they're getting through in other ways, the black market, um, but that's definitely an area, I think, for progress uh, to be made. And ways to change the politics. Uh, I, I did my... That's a hard yes, question. Yes. <laughs> actually, my first time ever lobbying on Capitol Hill last week, uh, where I went, yes, with book in hand. Um, She's on Facebook doing it. Yes, um, <laughs> where uh, there's a group, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., called the Center for Health and Gender Equity. They do a lot of lobbying against the global gag rule, so they had me go to several staffing staff um, offices uh, on both the Senate side and the House of Representatives side. And the strategy is to have the Democratic staffers talk to the Republican staffers. And these staffers are the ones who inform their bosses, the senators and the representatives. And the strategy that change is using is to have the Democratic staffer say, you know, the global gag rule is not working. It's increasing abortions. You need to educate your Republican bosses that it's just not working and other methods are needed. So I don't know if that will work. I'm pretty pessimistic, too, but we have to keep trying. You know, we have to try. Uh, the woman at the back, the person there, and that. Hi. Just in response to that, maybe um, a cause for optimism. I was very recently working in South Africa specifically on a project to increase abortion with the National Department of Health there. Not increase abortion, sorry. <laughs> Improve access to abortions. And I think this kind of information, I understand that it may not be very influential in, you know, changing the minds of Republican lawmakers, but because of this, a lot of other countries are stepping up. The EU has started funding um, in, in the space of the USAID. Um, we were funded along with MSI and a number of other organizations across about 20 different countries um, by a large anonymous donor. <laughs> So, and I think, <laughs> like Mr. B, and I think everyone in the space knows who the large anonymous donor is, but I think this serves not just to, you know, this kind of data is not just influential in, in working with U.S. policymakers, but in addressing the gap as to why are we depending on just one country? Can there be other donors that step in? Okay. Um, the person, did you have one? I have, I have a mic here, too. Okay. Uh, there was someone here. You. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Mara. I'm a master's student in development studies. Um, so I know that the U.S. has actually not funded any abortion, even under Democratic presidents, through the Helms Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, so even at like Mary Stopes, they have to use separate bank accounts for abortion procedures so that it doesn't use U.S. funds. Um, do you think that U.S. policymakers are aware of that? Because I think the rhetoric is the global gag rule stops abortion funds, which is untrue. And if mm -hmm. so, if, if people were aware, if that would make a difference, things like that. 
Yeah. And then someone over there. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for your talk. Um, my name is Emily Troutner, and I'm a, a master's student in health policy planning and financing. And my question was kind of a basic rule about the global gag rule, simply because I haven't worked around it that much. But I just wanted to know how is it enforced, and does it vary by region? Um, and then, or like the type of program um, that it's affecting. And um, one more kind of related question is, did you, um, you kind of presented your results in a regional uh, manner. Did you do a regression that looked at all of the regions together and what did that look like? Okay, um, good questions. The Helms Amendment, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of it, I believe it was passed in 1973, um, so a number of years before the Mexico City policy. And that one, uh, as you mentioned, cuts off funding directly for providing abortions. So this went into effect well before the global gag rule. What the global gag rule says is that a nonprofit or an NGO abroad may not perform any abortions with any funding at all if they wish to continue to get financial aid from the US. So they can't even use their own funding or funding from other sources to perform an abortion, you know, or to counsel on abortion or whatever. So that's the, the, the gag part of it. Um, and you, that's a very perceptive comment on you know, the rhetoric around the global gag rule that people who don't understand the policy, you know, they, they boil it down to very simple terms. Well, um, you know, I don't want US tax dollars paying for abortions. Okay, well, that's not what the global gag rule does. As you mentioned, that's what the Helms Amendment did. And, um, that one's probably even more difficult to overturn uh, because that was an amendment to um, f um, a major act that uh, was the uh, Foreign Aid Act, I think the, the main U.S. legislative piece that allowed the U.S. to uh, give foreign aid to developing countries. That's the Helms Amendment. I think it would be much harder to overturn than the global gag rule, which is an executive order. Um, yeah, so the U.S. government has not been paying for abortions since 1973. <laughs> okay, as for enforcement, um, it's done through contracts. Uh, who had the enforcement question again? Yes, uh, largely done through contracts with USAID and um, I think detailed questions asked and organizations are required to sign documents that they're in compliance with. There's a lot of fear, and that's what some of these qualitative studies found that were done earlier for the 2001 and even the 1984 policy. A lot of fear among health providers of being found out or that somebody will report them and that they'll get their funds cut off. So over-interpretation, kind of like what we're seeing with Ernestina, um, because they're just afraid of getting the funding cut off. Uh, but yes, I think the enforcement itself happens through the signing of contracts or the non-renewal of contracts based on the, the documents that people have to sign and the fear of being found out if they are not complying with what they're agreeing to in the contracts. Uh, there's any more questions? No? Okay, well, I think we'll give a big round of applause. To